Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Valon Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet, and in my humble opinion, the top futurist to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. Live here from Palm Springs. It's 103 degrees. I'm here at my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. He looks tropical, but you don't really know where he is. But he's in the tropical paradise. Bala is my chief, not only the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce, he's one of the top CIO, CMO followers on Twitter. One of the most insightful analysis in terms of what's happening in tech. And of course, an awesome follow author and more important, one of the top influencers in the world. But we're not here to talk about us. We're here to figure out what is hot. What is hot in design thinking? Where are we headed? What do we have on our guest roster today? It's our pr privilege to have Gene Litka, uh, Darden School of Business professor at the University of Virginia, formerly the Associate Dean of MBA at Darden and Chief Learning Officer for United Technologies. Gene's research focuses on the intersection of innovation and strategy, in particular the integration of design thinking into organization problem-solving processes. Jean has taught design thinking to thousands of managers, both in person and at Darden, and through her online coursework, and authored numerous books, including The Catalyst, Designing for Growth, a design thinking toolkit for managers and solving business problems with design thinking, 10 stories of what works. Her newest book, Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovation in the Social Sector, translates her work into public sector. Please follow Jean on Twitter at J-E-N-N-E-L-I-E-D-T-K-A. Welcome, Gene, to Disrupt TV. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, so let's talk. Let's start by talking about design thinking. People have like an elemental view of design thinking. They're like, okay, I got empathy. I put myself in the customer. But it's a lot more than that when you get deeper into it. So let's start by talking about where is it and what's going on with design thinking. So I think there's this kind of misconception that design thinking is really only about the kind of fuzzy front end of innovation. So like you said, Ray, it's about ethnography and journey mapping and empathy and all of this. And that is all really important to design thinking and, and really critical because a lot of the value derives from design thinking's willingness to totally immerse ourselves in the reality of the messiness of human life of the people we're trying to serve. So, so that's critical. But there's an important kind of back end to the design process that is really about uh, experimentation and surfacing your assumptions and thinking about uh, how to do crude quick prototypes, how to co-create with the people you're trying to serve. And so, you know, coming from my world of business, both parts of design thinking are revolutionary, you know, because it's not about quantitative data. It's not about big data. It's about little data, small ends, but deep immersion in people's lives. And in the back end, it's not about analysis and Excel spreadsheets. It's about experimentation and action. It's about getting out there with ideas. And instead of the boss deciding what ideas work, 
take it back to the people you're trying to serve. So for me, who grew up as a strategist, I come out of the world of very traditional strategy consulting, a la Boston Consulting Group and all that kind of background. Uh, design thinking for me has just opened up a whole new world of tools. So, so Gene, I'm a CEO of a public company and I come to you and say, look, principal, I love design thinking. I love the definition, the potential outcome, the fact that it's an outside in approach. But I live every 90 days and I promise to my stakeholders, shareholders, my revenue targets, my growth targets. How can you help me, a public company, to adopt design thinking when I understand the importance of experimentation and putting this customer at the center, but I have other obligation that's uh, pulling me away from the, from the notion of design thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, of course you do. We know this is the reality of, of the lives of business people, right? There's a, there's a reason why business people are all about control and predictability mm. because we live with quarterly earnings per share uh, estimates. Uh, now, the downside, though, is we live in a world, especially if we want to innovate and create better value for the people that we serve, that is unfortunately no longer as controllable as it used to be or as predictable as it used to be. So design thinking helps us with that element, right? It doesn't replace all the traditional tools in our toolkit. It, it doesn't make all the analytics we've learned and the forecasting and projections, careful cost analysis. It doesn't say don't pay attention to them, but it says if you want to continue to be successful tomorrow, then you can't just keep churning on the hamster wheel of the way you're doing things today. You have to step back. You have to develop a new and deeper insights into how to differentiate your product and service from the people you're competing against. And that's when design thinking can make a big difference in the long-term success of an organization and your continued ability to meet those quarterly earnings per share estimates. Great advice. So who's using it? Like, is it the designer folks? Is it the CMO? Is it a CEO that's coming in? Like, who's really using it and putting it to use? Well, to me, you know, the awesome part of design thinking is that everyone could use it. I mean, on Coursera now, we've taught over 100,000 people from school teachers to nurses to mothers to managers to CEOs, to people in the military. I mean, over the, over the past seven years, we've uh, been running a large uh, research database here at uh, Darden following design thinking projects. And we have everything from massive government organizations like the Food and Drug Administration, Washington, DC, uh, down to uh, organizations like uh, UNICEF, thinking about how they do advocacy planning, to medical centers like uh, Monash Medical Center in Melbourne, Australia, figuring out how to get staff to wash their hands more often to reduce infection. Mm. So I think any kind of problem that involves human beings and understanding them in ways that help you encourage them to make a different set of choices, I think we're seeing design thinking in action. I, I just last week wrote uh, a ZDNet post about uh, 7,000 consumer and business to business buyer survey. And one of the key findings of the survey was that 80% of the respondents said that the customer experience is as important as the product or the service that they're purchasing. And 72% have shifted to a competitor or bought from someone else, not because of the product or the service, but the poor experience. 
is part of the benefit of design thinking an improved user experience, customer experience? Absolutely. I mean, you know, even in the world of traditional business strategy, we know that the product is just a vehicle for creating some kind of experience, right? I mean, we've always known that. Now with, you know, work of people like Pine and Gilmore and the attention to the experience economy, we're more explicit about it. But, you know, we always knew that as soon as, as a company, you decided you were your product, rather than being a helpmate in meeting the job to be done needs of your customers, you were lost and your future wasn't going to be as bright as the present one. Right. So again, the product is to be a solution to some customer needs. But the real issue is, how do we keep our eye on tomorrows? How do we, in a hyper-competitive world, oftentimes figure out what people need before they're even able to tell us that they need it? That's the secret to breakthrough growth. So building an anticipatory muscle, anticipating the need in advance and being able to deliver before, before the ask. Absolutely. And we know that's risky business, right? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, when you're managing that kind of growth portfolio in an organization, you're acting like a venture capitalist, right? right. And we know the statistics on venture wow. capitalists. What? Every 10 new businesses a VC invests in, they expect, I think the latest number is 1.8 to pay off. So what do they do? They have a portfolio of bets. And the important thing is as much to figure out which eight to stop investing in as it is which two to keep going on. But, you know, coming out of a world like I do of traditional strategy, we actually think we, we've got one answer and it's the right one and we're figuring out how to implement it. When what we actually need to do and to survive the world we're in today is we have to think of managing a portfolio of business ideas getting them out there and letting the people we're serving tell us which ones work and which ones don't. And then we've got to be able to detach our ego from our idea hmm. and kill the babies that are ugly as one of the managers in our study told us recently. <laughs> oh no. Anyways, but yeah, but so, so this, this takes us back to the point around boards, right? Boards aren't sure what to do with design thinking. They feel like they have to do it to innovate. They feel like that's kind of like, you know, the, the, the topic du jour, but the, the issue really is, right? What do they need to know about process, how long it takes, and more importantly, this may not be a one-time thing. This is built into your culture over time, right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I love best about uh, design thinking is, you know, I, I, I'm the last remnants of the Woodstock generation, so I love subversion in every form. <laughs> and design thinking, it's like a Trojan horse. You know, you wheel it in, it looks safe, but, but there's really revolution in there because what design thinking can do is literally democratize innovation. So right now we have this old world style model of innovation, which is kind of what, what I call the Moses myth, you know, the Steve Jobs, Jack Ma myth, that there's a group of great thinkers at headquarters working mm. with a bunch of super smart techie people. And that's really where disruption comes from. That's the kind of innovation that matters. But we know that's not true. Everyone at every level in the organization has ways they can create better value for the people the organization serves cumulatively. That's a huge number, right? And we've got cases to, to, to show that. Um, and so part of the challenge, I think, if you're running an organization, if you're on the board, is that our ideas of centralized control just don't work anymore. 
right? We, we, we used to treat, we, we treat business organizations like our cars. We, we step on the gas and we expect them to go, right? Like they're mechanical objects. The reality is organizations are actors. They're composed of all kinds of independent human beings who make decisions based on their own reality, their own values, their own preferences. And the trick to handling high uncertainty environments is to let go of this idea that everything has to happen uh, out of executive leadership, right? Now, letting go is a scary idea because as we said earlier, as an executive, you're responsible for meeting a set of quarterly earnings targets. Right. What design thinking can do and what makes it exciting to me is I believe done correctly, it can give us the best of both worlds. It, is, is, it, is it a way to battle extreme EBITDA? Well, you know, it can give us local responsiveness. It can help the people who see opportunities that you just can't see at the top at every level of the organization. And if it's implemented in a systematic process-driven way, taught well, then you have control, but it's not control by rules of how to behave and what you should do, right? It's by creating a different kind of conversation in the organization. And so I think that's what's powerful. Now, that doesn't mean that you put everybody in the organization through a one-day hackathon or you send them to a couple of day boot camp and then you unleash them to, you know, revolutionize your strategy. No, I, what we're finding is to teach this stuff effectively, um, online is incredibly powerful because what you really want to do is you want to teach it in place with people learning it as they do projects that matter to them, supported and coached by people who know how to do it. So you want to deliver it just in time as they progress through the process, right? And you want to continue to give them the support and the coaching that they need because it's scary at first. It bumps up against the basic fear as human beings that 95% of us have that if we make a mistake, it means we're stupid, right? Mm -hmm. And we've got to give that up and figure out how to harness the creative energy that everybody has, but in ways that still allow us to maintain the coherence and quality control we need, especially in large organizations. So how quickly can you tell whether a company is ready to embark on this journey of online courses and learning? Do you look for, you know, a, a, a culture that's comfortable with a little bit of uncertainty? Do you look for a decentralized uh, organization or a collaborative culture where they're using social collaboration tools to actually see and hear ideas in the fabric of the org? How quickly can you assess a company's readiness and if they are at different stages, do they all start at the same place with the online courses? Or do you benchmark where a company is in terms of readiness and they can potentially skip through or go back a little bit and learn to appreciate what type of culture, talent, processes they need in order to embrace design thinking? Well, you know, I think as we think about the companies and the pace at which they can move with design thinking, and in part, for me, how much of it is top-down versus kind of grassroots, um, this question of how kind of design-friendly their current corporate culture is and structure and all that is very important. I mean, if you've got a company like Intuit, right, already extremely user-centered. 
right? Um, uh, willing to experiment, willing to take risks, uh, comfortable with ambiguity, uh, comfortable with uh, taking a chance and things like that, coaching each other, highly social. Uh, it's a lot easier to roll it out. Right? Sure. Uh, it, uh, however, in some ways, the biggest advantages are figuring out how to do this stuff in companies that are rigid and bureaucratic and hierarchical and afraid of change. And in those environments, my experience has been, we want to invite the people who themselves are already ready. Mm -hmm. So even in the most rigid, hierarchical, giant organization, there are people who are ready to do this stuff. Right. Right? There's people who see opportunities, who have the courage to act on them, but are just waiting for permission or the decision-making autonomy to conduct experiments or even just enough time. We've been doing a lot of research in the federal government in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in D.C. The biggest impediment to people doing this is time. You know, they're running around fighting so many fires. They don't have the time to invest in doing the kind of careful research and experimentation that these methods require. But you know, if, oh, go yeah, ahead. I was just going to say, so if you, can, if you can find that coalition of the willing, as people yes. call them, who are ready to get started and support them, they will produce a set of results that will cause the skeptics to look twice at the methodologies. And again, I think choice is very powerful versus mandate. The more you can empower a group of people already willing, let them find the stories and build their own successes and tell them to other people, people will convert when they see that it works. Awesome advice. You know, Fala and I were just speaking to the federal council CIOs on AI and automation last week, and uh, we could see that people are starting to embrace some of these skills around design thinking, thinking about how they could use that to actually resolve problems. Let's quickly go through common mistakes. What, what do people make um, when they get into a design thinking exercise? Maybe like three or four myths we can kind of break so people can kind of think about, you know, what they need to do and uh, how to get even started. Well, the first thing that drives me crazy is, of course, the hackathon. Right. So you have this big one day hackathon, lots of post-it notes. Everybody's all excited that nothing happens. Right. Everybody goes back to their office the next day and goes back to business as usual because you're talking about developing a set of competencies here that require discipline and practice and coaching. Right. Nobody learns them in a one day hackathon. They're, it's great for building awareness, but I get called by these organizations and they want me to teach design thinking in two days. You know, you're like, well, you know, you get what you invest in, right? Um, uh, maybe give me two days, but then you got to pads. 12 weeks of, yeah, yeah. Well, the post-it <laughs> note is the other thing. You know, it's like people can't take a note on a regular piece of paper now anymore. You know, it's got to be on a post-it note. Well, you know, I'm sorry, post-it notes are very good for certain things, but they're a dumb place to take notes, right? <laughs> so like anything else in business, we've got this pendulum swing where you've got a group of people for whom design thinking has become a religion, right? Mm -hmm. And you just got to run the other way when that happens because you know what's going to happen. And it's going to be like, you know, the young boy with the hammer and they're going to use design thinking on every problem that shows up when in fact, it's really just suited for a particular category of problem, right? They're going to give a slapdash, training and no one's going to know what they're doing and then they're going to declare it a failure because let's see you know it didn't work right they're going to put people <laughs> six sigma meets design thinking devops meets design thinking they're not going to realign the system you know a classic thing with all new ways of operating right you can ask people to do a new set of behaviors but if the system still reinforces and supports and rewards the old set of behaviors 
well, you can ask all you want, you're not going to get them, right? I, I always love the comment, uh, the comment uh, of TQ, around TQM. And again, I think if you look at where design thinking is today, in many ways, the opportunity with design thinking is the opportunity around the quality movement at the origin of TQM, right? Because what we've got yes. in design thinking is this murky thing called innovation in the same way that, that in the quality movement, no one actually knew what quality was, right? You couldn't be against quality, but how do you embed it and change the behaviors of lots of people in a large organization? TQM came, it was teachable and scalable, and it allowed everybody to own quality. And, and that's the promise of design thinking if we're willing to make the commitment to do it well. Given what we learned from you in the last 30 minutes, I can imagine two days would be an amazing journey. <laughs> Thank you so much. We are here live. <laughs> well, I should We are here live from Charlottesville with Gene Lidka, <laughs> Professor at Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. And you can follow. Gene at Gene, J-E-A-N-N-E-L-I-E-D-T-K-A. And thank you so much for being on the show. And as Vala said, yes, we can be learning from you for quite some time. And uh, maybe you'll get a chance to come, come out to Half Moon Bay with us at some point. So I'd love to. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. You were wonderful. Wow. Thank you very much. Ray, that was awesome. That was, uh, that was uh, quite a bit of insights packed in 30 minutes. Well, oh, it's good. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, we live in the, I live in the valley, right? And design thinking has been around for so long. It, it is almost a religion and it gets a little scary because people go all the way on one end and, and then we have to come back and say, no, 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 you want to do that. So it's good to get some pragmatic advice around design thinking. Who do we have next? We've got some even cooler stuff going on here. We do. Our, our, as we can our get guest. into the, uh, maybe the digital detox version of uh, our show. <laughs> our, our, <laughs> Our guest is Dr. Leah Wise, a Stanford University professor, researcher, consultant, and author of How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Uh, Leah is a, a principal teacher and founding faculty member of Stanford's Compassion uh, Cultivation Program. Uh, conceived by the Dalai Lama, Leah teaches compassionate leadership at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where she created the perennial waitlisted course Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion. By the way, my company has a mindfulness floor. Just want to let you know that. <laughs> Leah also directs Compassion Education and Scholarship at uh, Hope uh, Lab, uh, a, a group research and development nonprofit focused on resiliency. You can follow Leah on Twitter at L-E-A-H-W-E-I-S-S-P-H-D. Welcome, Leah, to the Shrub TV. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Hey, we're really excited to have you. I mean, this is one of the big issues. You've noticed how mental health has suddenly creeped up again all different places. And it's the pressures, the pressures that are all around us. And so one of these great questions here is really, look, the range of emotions work can often trigger a lot of different things where we can't even express what we're trying to say. Sometimes we're codified. We feel like we're boxed in. But, but what is it? And why can't we express feelings at work? And, and what's driving that? What's holding us back? Mm, I love this question. Um, well, I think it's such an interesting moment to be asking uh, and answering it together because I think we're in a period where there are changing expectations and norms in a number of companies around how candor functions and how we can be more transparent. And in fact, that's 
asked of us in our leadership that we have an effective way of communicating with our teams, with our departments, as part of our role as leaders to show um, who we are as human beings to help enlist um, engagement in them and their true passion for what we're working on. And, and that then requires, and I appreciate your, the way you frame the question, we need to be able to, it's, it's uh, um, negotiating with ourselves, like what is too much then in the workplace? And, you know, we're there also to get things done, not just talk about our feelings. So, you know, a lot of the questions that I think get really interesting in this space is what, how do you strike that balance? How do you look at that? What's the right amount of investment in knowing what's going on for your colleagues? Um, without too much or too little? And how do you know when you're in that sweet spot? And different people need to do it differently. What's helpful for one person is like shocking or upsetting or too much for another. Uh, so that, that's where it gets also interesting. We had a guest uh, on our show, Kim Scott, who wrote a book about radical transparency at work. And she talked about empathy and trust and what managers need to do to really understand uh, the needs of, of, of the workforce and help cultivate a culture that's safe and open. Uh, how do you shift from a culture of paychecks to, to one that has a broader purpose that can bring you joy and meaning while, while, you're, while you're at work? Yeah, so I think this is a key question that needs to be asked and answered at the organizational level, um, that leadership needs to not make assumptions that everybody understands what they're doing and why. And in fact, the research would suggest the opposite. 30% of people can tell you what their role is and how it fits in with their organizational mission. I mean, 70% of people are running around and they don't know what they're doing or why. That's shocking. So wow. the way I make sense of this with my students is, you, at your own peril, do you skip over the continual process of sense making, which is why I love the metaphor of the puzzle box top um, rather than true north, because true north, you know, it's like, go that way. We do need to recalibrate, but I love the puzzle box top because you can't, it's very difficult to do a complex puzzle if you're not continually referring back. And also it's a nice metaphor for understanding how different perspectives and strengths and weaknesses, if we can be transparent about them, that creates an opportunity for a stronger team. But you have to, as leadership, model a willingness to express your weaknesses as well as your strengths. You need to understand people's preferences, the work that they're really lit up by versus don't want to do. You have to create an environment where you can find that out and where they trust you to um, surface problems early um, yeah, these are all crucial. Great advice. You know, you got another great saying, full catastrophe working, right? <laughs> uh, so you talk about mind-body connections and experiencing emotions as they occur. What do you mean by full catastrophe working? It sounds, it sounds like <laughs> radical. <laughs> I have three little kids, so I have to up the ante on like, you know, it's, I'm, I love the, the upside of chaos um, is I think a really creative space the way that I think about operationalizing um, what it means to have full catastrophe approach to working is really understanding that we are fully embodied human beings who are functioning in specific tasks and roles. 
but we don't check our emotions at the door. If something's going on, if you have a sick relative, we had an argument with our partner on the way to work, those things come with us. They're there whether we talk about them or not. And this is where it gets interesting because if we suppress them, and that's many people's primary strategy in the workplace, that has the paradoxical effect of making our emotions stronger and more out of control. We're like the balloon that pokes in at one side and we're going to pop at a really inopportune moment, most likely. So what we need to do is find ways to under, to not only like deal with our emotions as though we're a problem, but I think this is where the education piece comes in. We need to know that our, our emotions are really valuable. They're part of how we've evolved to interpret threat in, op in our environment an opportunity. And when you talk to people, I mean, making this practical, like the great investors, if you get at a p underlying decisions they're making, often somatic awareness or what people refer to as intuition, it really comes back to like, they know their emotional infrastructure really well, and they can identify how they're being triggered in a different, any different situation and make decisions more effectively. That's what we can all be training in. So based on your research or experience, what are some of the traits that successful organizations or leaders demonstrate? One, the, I, and maybe you can prioritize, maybe not, but one, one, you know, two or three traits that, that come yeah. to mind. Mental flexibility and perspective taking is a huge one. Um, and the more rigid the leadership is, then that will, that will have bleed over into everybody. Okay. Intellectual humility, which is closely related. Um, the ability, to, which means really having this innate curiosity, not coming into a situation um, presuming we know. And I've had, um, I remember years ago when Scott Krenz came into my class at GSB and was talking to the students, one of the things that he talked to them about was, you know, yeah, my background is engineering, but what does it mean if I go into a meeting with people who have been working full time on a problem for months and I don't have the intellectual humility, use different language word, but I don't come at it from the perspective of um, that they have information and they have a lot they're bringing to the table. So the right approach is curiosity. It's not coming in and cutting them down or being directive in a way that's not respectful of that whole process and background. And by the way, is extremely triggering and demoralizing for people when they've been working full time on something. So that how we give, we learn and give um, surface problems and give feedback can be framed very differently. And these are, kind of the key skills that, um, you know, working with my students, we're very type A, you know, very elite performing folks who have, you know, hyper reactivity. If they get a date wrong on a slide, they'll talk about wanting to quit that consulting job. Like it's hyper, hyper perfectionism, right? So you have to know if you're wired that way, that that has impact on the people around you. And you need to mitigate that, or you can be the best, most perfectionistic type of person, but no one will want to work with you, and nobody will want to bring you problems if you can't tolerate deviating from this impossible per, uh, goal. That was my biggest learning as a manager. It took me mm -hmm. years to recognize that I was unwilling to slow down 
or negotiate my pace of learning and expectations to my team. And, and that was a mistake. That was a, that was a, I, I wasn't able to um, bring the best out of people because of my intolerance to perfectionism. Um, and often, by the way, I was Paul's wrong. A, Paul is a, ta a taskmaster. <laughs> <laughs> how, so, how did you break through that? What made you realize um, that was not the way to go and then to be able to change it, which is no small I had a couple thing. of high, I had a couple of high performers quit. They left the company. And even though they didn't explicitly say they left because of my management style, I knew it was because of my management style. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I questioned whether they worked as hard as I did and whether they were as committed as I was. And at the end of the day, they were doing their very best. And in fact, they were exceeding my expectations. And I, I just needed to reframe my, 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 my whole mindset. Um, but it took time. It took years, not not you know, not one or two incidents. But as I reflect back, boy, was I making mistakes as a, as a young, you know, uh, naive and, and, and I would say even strong word, inconsiderate manager. So anyway, <laughs> enough yeah, about I, I was in the, I was in the same boat. No, no, no. We were, I was in the same boat too. I mean, we, I mean, we, we grew up in, in very high performing environments that are very, very, I'd say meritocracy based. And if you don't keep up, you just, you're, you're out, right? I mean, it's in or out, in or out. And so you, you learn some behaviors where it's like, guys, you know, you know, in five minutes if this team is going to perform or not, and, and you just eject everybody unless they perform or else you start new teams. So there's never that moment to reflect, but that's the luxury if you're working in super high performing teams where you don't care where the resources are coming from. But most organizations are stuck in, in a situation where, I mean, these are people that have been with you for a very, very long time. You've got to figure out how to reskill, get people to the same level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I didn't realize that until I actually went to work for a real company instead of doing consulting, <laughs> which, which you don't care. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. With consulting, you don't have to think about as much uh, unless you're actually running the client team, which is, which is very different. And so, so you bring up a great point, which is really around why are soft skills like decision making, delivering feedback important to managers? And I mean, I don't know. I grew up with a feedback like, you suck, dude. Get this fixed and uh, call us in three months, right? I mean, that's how I grew up, right? I mean, it's like that. That was kind of the environment. It's kind of, you know, 80s New York. It's kind of like they're in your face to tell you how they think. You go out and get a beer later. But, you know, that doesn't work out on the left coast of it. It's kind of weird. You know, people are like, oh, my God, you hurt my feelings. I'm like, yeah, I know I did, but that was not the point. <laughs> so, so it's like the shift has completely come around. It's like, you know, people, people are like, hey, I've never worked for that person. I think you and I need uh, some sessions with Dr. Leah. But anyway, well. <laughs> no, no, we're going to be trained. Over still, beer, anytime. Still. <laughs> we need to sign up for your class, both of us. But why are, <laughs> why are soft skills important? Soft skills, and I'll be really interested to hear both of your take on this. The reason that I'm, I'm out there soapboxing about soft skills is because I think they are the difference maker, the technical skills, and I see this in my students, because technical um, approaches are changing so quickly. If you were to spend your several hundred thousand dollar investment at Stanford Business School learning technical skills that would be obsolete in a few years, that's probably not the best use of your money. But if you learn the sort of perennial human skills, um, that is a really good investment. And I think what we see from looking at research around how people's careers progress, the technical skills get you in the door. The technical skills get you that first job and it gets you a certain percentage of the way. But then what happens to people is they just don't move forward and it's because of the human dimension. People don't want to work with them. 
or you know those kinds of issues. So it really becomes a logjam for them. Um, and there's good data now around like what is the upside for companies of investing in. Um, I, I think the other key piece of the soft skills is. Often people look at it as it's either something this person has, that person doesn't, but actually a lot of the stuff is highly trainable. And that's great news for companies because it's cheaper for you to train someone to have better communication and do, do demonstrate perspective taking than it is for you to lose your talent who's an amazing you know, engineer, but they don't, if you believe you can't train them, then you have a huge um, opportunity cost. If you recognize that you can, then um, you can do a lot with that high potential person. Absolutely. What do you guys think about? Does that resonate with what you've seen in your experience? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal from Tom Peters because almost everything I say is borrowed. But <laughs> he said soft skills are the hard skills. Uh, yeah. You know, and 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 you know, attitude. You know, aptitude can get you there, but it's attitude that keeps you there. And uh, so, I wish I had more training in terms of defining a purpose, building a coalition and consensus, mindfulness. It's only until, I mean, I've you know, been in the tech industry for over 20 years, but the last two years with Salesforce, and this isn't just a plug for my company, but my company has taught me the power and the importance of being purpose-driven and mindfulness, uh, reflection. Um, and those are lessons I didn't have in the first 20 years. I, I just, it was a fast-paced startup, public startup world and uh you know it just uh it was you know as you go through the grind and your nose to the ground you sometimes forget about the importance of being being a better person <laughs> not just better in tech or better managers better person so i don't know ray your thoughts about importance of soft skills no i, I mean soft skills have always been important i think that the challenge has been um, finding managers that support that and you know the best leaders i mean do that but uh you know when you're when you're struggling and when you're like low margin industries, you don't necessarily always have that luxury, but it makes the difference between you know how people understand their company, understand their role and purpose. Um, I think as we start doing more research on mission and purpose, we start to realize that that's the biggest driver on on not just retention but also innovation. Um, and and I think you know we're, we're seeing that across the board as as leaders mature. Um, you know I'm I'm second generation American. You know I, I kind of grew up like an immigrant in that sense, right? It was like it's get the first basics gen. done and work on the hard skills, right? You're first gen, you know, and and you just work. Mm -hmm. You just work and you just you get to a certain point, but then you realize, hey, why am I working, right? And so that all starts to come to bear, and, and I think there's that realization that people have. But hey, I want to ask you about the, uh, you know, it's the most popular class at GSB at Stanford's Business School, Interpersonal Dynamics, commonly known as touchy-feely. What's, what's up with that? Why, what, why is that the number one class? <laughs> why is that the number one? We're going to sign up, Ray and I. I hope you offer remote uh, classes. <laughs> well, so. I don't know if it'll help me on campus. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, touchy-feely has been around for 30 years. And, you know, it's really Stanford's flagship program. And it's it's been so interesting because um, when I came in and started teaching the mindfulness and compassionate leadership, of course, there's such an overlap um, that, you know, a lot of alumni would reach out to me and say, you know, when I was at GSB, touchy-feely was the most important experience. And since that time, I've been developing mindfulness practice, for example. Um, and so what happens in Touchy Feely is, you know, basically we could do a tea group right now and the way we would start is by sharing with each other, like, not just ideas, but really 
reacting transparently to how we're experiencing one another. So, you know, when you just share that example about your first 20 years at, at Salesforce, I, you know, I really resonated with that. I appreciate your vulnerability. And then maybe where things would get interesting would be like, to if I, I didn't, but hypothetically. And I, you know, I had a little bit of a question about your authenticity in this aspect of that story. And, you know, then we would go from there. And then, um, so the learning is, in the room, in the space, in the what we're observing in one another and how we're interpreting one another and having the opportunity to pull behind the curtain. And that goes so well with skills like mindfulness to know what I'm literally feeling and thinking while I'm interpreting you that way and building my ability to communicate that with you. And then you also take the feedback of things that I'm doing behaviorally that are not that are landing in ways that I are not awesome for you. Um, that that's the kind of experience, and then they have a bunch of like more um, framework-driven pieces. But that's the heart of the experience. I did a couple-day retreat on it um, when my second child was a newborn, and it was it was a really interesting experience. It, it got real really quick. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We are here with Leah Weiss, PhD professor and author at Stanford. She's got a great book, How We Work, Reclaim Your Sanity. I love the secondary title. Uh, you can follow her at Leah Weiss, PhD, and you can uh, catch her on Stanford, catch her classes if you're out there, and of course, definitely get the book. So thanks a lot, and uh, hope awesome. to see you again. So. Awesome. Thanks so much. It was so fun to talk to you. Take it easy, guys. Have a good weekend. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. You as well. You as well. Wow, that was that was that was awesome. Uh, <laughs> if this was if this was a a forty minute conversation, I'm afraid I would have shared more of my shortcomings as a manager. So I'm glad that was only twenty. <laughs> I've got about an hour worth of stories of how how I could have I should have improved over my career. But uh, but uh, so so. Uh, our, our cleanup hitter spot is usually reserved for a first ballot Hall of Fame a Disrupt TV inductee. Uh, speaking of touchy-feely, uh, we have <laughs> Alan Lepofsky, who's vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research. He's got over two decades of experience in collaboration software industry. He helps organizations improve the way their employees work together and get jobs done. Alan's primary research area, the future of work, focuses on integrating collaboration and business processes, structuring work via uh, social collaboration tools, leveraging analytics, digital assistance to work more productively, strategic impact of mobile computing, of business, and much more. He's got, he wants us to think about two big ideas. One is uh, intelligent collaboration in protection of social and analytics, and the second is a shift from simply sharing to purposeful collaboration. So think about those two big ideas as we have our conversation. He is a must follow on Twitter at A-L-A-N-L-E-P-O. Welcome back, Alan. <laughs> Thank you, Vala. I always love your introductions. It, uh, it's, it makes me tired thinking about that I cover all that stuff. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, my hardest time with extraordinary folks like you is cutting your bio to about a minute. So I leave out a lot, but people can find you on Twitter and learn more. So, so, so the 10 second version of that, you know, we've always talked about productivity and collaboration. Let's modernize that term. Let's talk employee experience. That, that's my focus area. Ray and some of my colleagues focus on excellent customer facing external things. 
I'm focused on the employee experience. Love that. What are your thoughts on your, of our first two guests? Because obviously everything they shared is in line in terms of building a healthy future of work. I, I took so many notes. It was actually fun. I was, but some on Twitter and some, unfortunately, on Post-it notes, even though I was told that Post-it notes are not the right way to take notes. I had a feeling some of our viewers would be writing on Post-it notes. But. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've got a dozen of them lying here on my desk underneath me. Um, what, one of the things I found the most interesting was the conversation around that 70% of the workforce is sort of running around, you know, almost chicken with their head cut off, not knowing if they're focused on the right thing that is meeting the company mission or is accomplishing what the goals or projects they're supposed to be on. And that just ties so well into this area of us not communicating properly or not being coordinated properly. It's not just the ability to push messages and have conversations, but I think a lot of things are happening at work without proper structure and organization. And we're seeing a rise in those types of tools that help us sort of all stay on the same page. Not crazy project management, Sigma Six black belt type of scary stuff, but just knowing that you're working on the right thing. Makes sense. So I want all of the folks watching the show, go to, go to Alan's uh, Twitter feed and you're gonna see a pinned tweet. And I'm gonna read it very quickly. Think about the number of tools that are part of employee toolset, email, calendar, con contacts, chat, blogs, wiki, social networks, tasks, file sharing, web conferencing, and it continues to list. Yeah. Alan notes, the problem is each of these things are discrete tools. They don't provide a seamless experience based around specific actions or the purpose of specific things you're trying to accomplish. Last paragraph, incremental change is not enough. Moving to mobile or cloud is not enough. We need complete radical rethink of our productivity and collaboration tools. By the way, that's why I love your Twitter feed. So insightful. Talk to us about why we're not doing enough to harmonize and really get the most out of our company, our, our stakeholders, employees, customers, partners, communities. And, and a part of that is this disparate set of tools that are in front of us. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so passionate about this topic because I think we need to fix this. Work is broken. Like what work we've done, broken. work is broken for wow. most people. You know, I, you don't ask, most people are not going to respond back to you that they love the tools they use, they work perfectly, they make them productive, they're perfectly efficient. What we've done as a software industry over the last 20 years is just keep layering on those tools, you know, that you just listed. Yeah. And every time there's a great new shiny way of doing something, we add to that tool set. We don't rethink the process, we don't add it to the stuff that exists we put another icon on the desktop or we put another icon on the phone. And what that's caused is just this overload, this overwhelming feeling of what do I do? Where do I do it? What's the right tool for the right situation? Where did I post that? Who was I speaking to? Like all of these different things occur. And I really think we need to not just do the 2018, 2019, 2020 version of the tools we need. I think we need to start to rethink, are we using the right tools? What if we were to redesign software starting in 2020 and we weren't just adding to email and office documents and chat conversations? You know, what if we could start from scratch and design tools that allowed us to actually productively get our work done? And the key thing to solve in all of this 
is this concept of context. context. Our software is so dramatically lacking in telling us what we need to know right now. Think about this moment. You know, we are on Disrupt TV, there's four people. Can our viewers, with the click of a button, get all of our bios, our links, the things we've published, the places we work, the weather where we are, connections, people we may have in common? No, all of that takes like 20 steps in 20 different places. And so I think throughout the course of your day, waking up, first meeting that you attend, project that you're working on, paper that you're writing, next meeting that you attend, all of these moments in your day, we need to have focus on only that moment at that time. And none of our tools do that. All of our tools show us everything at all of the time. And it's, it's far too challenging. Hey, Alan, it sounds like you're talking about ambient experiences, ambient employee experiences that are popping up that just happen to know what you need at the right time. How does that work? How do we even get to that point? Because I'm, I'm totally overwhelmed. Like my machine's hitting up, my machine overheated, right? Like it's like, it's like I don't want to be out here. That's 103 degrees out here, right? To get to that kind of context, what do you need? What do you need to happen? Well, we need to change the facets, the, the pivot points that we're using to filter and suggest our work. For the last 20 years, we've used date, time, sender, subject, size, file attachment, priority, like all of these things. What if our tools knew location, sentiment analysis, Heart stress rate? levels, uh, project priorities, importance, but not importance based on a flag, but based on actual keywords and values and return back to the company. It's 2018. When I wake up, my software doesn't say the most important thing for you to be working on right now is X. And we can do that. There's so much data being generated about us. The data points are things like the content. It's things like our customers and our colleagues. It's the conversations we're having. It's the locations we've been in. All of these different things should be used to only show me the information I need right now when I need it. So remember, birthday gift for wife. <laughs> that should always be prioritized. <laughs> So, Alan, is, is, this the, is this the promise of machine learning? Is this the promise of, is this why, of course, this is the paradox of the privacy and personalization and that delivering in the moment of truth. We hear in the news that some of our voice-activated devices are constantly listening so they can learn more about us yeah. uh, to deliver a better, faster, more personalized, as, as Ray said, ambient orchestration. Um, but at the same time, we're worried about misuse of info. I don't want the system to know as much about me as, as uh, so how do, you, how, how do we deal with that? How, and, 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 the, and part of that, our first guest um, talked about design thinking. Do you need better designers of these applications to get to that contextual intelligence in real time that you're talking about? Well, it's interesting because it is purely a cultural and business challenge to solve, not a technology one. We can secure information. The problem is people want eyeballs on data, they want advertising, they want to know everything about you. This is not a technology problem to solve. There is no technical reason a company has to be able to look inside my email, inside my chats, inside my contact lists. 
that can all be stored and secured and encrypted and all of those wonderful things. And colleagues of mine like, you know, Steve Wilson can talk about security and Holger Mueller can talk about the infrastructure and the data centers. And, you know, Doug can talk about that data. For me, it's about what does the employee feel comfortable giving up for the benefit that they're going to get back in return. And things like location awareness may be okay. Certain circumstances, you may need to flag, I don't need the system to know I'm at customer X because I'm working on a special project or you know nobody's allowed to know we're working on this merger and acquisition. I think we need to start understanding what companies are doing with our data. We need far more transparency from them. And we're seeing things like the backlash of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and these things. The problem isn't that it's happening. The problem is that people aren't telling us it's happening. And mm. organizations need to change that. You know, Tim Cook at Apple's, you know, at least in words, being very vocal about we are, we are going to be able to use artificial intelligence without breaking your security model. And we're just at the beginning of this. So I am not a cynic. I, I, I have faith we can do this. Uh, let me give you a very good tangible example. I was working with Cisco on this concept of facial recognition. And wouldn't it be wonderful for your meetings and your cameras and things to always know who you're looking at? So you create a visual map of your colleagues and your customers, and those facial vectors have to be stored somewhere. So you think, oh, wonderful, we're going to store them up in the cloud and then they're accessible from anywhere. And then you start to think about, is that the right thing to do or not? And so Cisco started to think about, well, no, your facial vectors should be stored encrypted locally only on your device. And the computing power to read that data should be yours and yours only, not up on the cloud. And so I thought that was very mindful of them, very thoughtful, very forward thinking of them in an age where you know, we expect to upload a photo to Facebook and it instantly tells you who the person is. Right. Is that the right thing or not? And so... I think we're going to see a future in software where the employee needs to opt in a lot more often. You know, GDPR just kicked in, things sure. like that. I think we should allow people to make choices about their data or at least let them know what's happening with their data much more than what we do today. Wow. Opt-in value exchange. Opt-in value exchange with your personal data. It's kind of hard. Yeah. Sorry, Val, you're saying something. I was just—I wouldn't mind having location tracking on Ray. I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Any vendor could could harness the power of Ray's travel. That would be uh, that would be worth on it. Fridays. I'd like to know where he is around the world. You know, it helps us. <laughs> I try to be home. <laughs> well, <laughs> since you guys were in tropical yeah. environments, I decided to fly somewhere cold. <laughs> That's, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, hey, Alan, as we augment humanity, what does that mean for ability to think? Do we lose the ability to think when everything gets automated, or what? What do we do when we get to that point? No, we're not going to lose the ability to think. It's going to enhance our ability to think. If we struggle with these things we've, struggled, we've talked about today, too much information, too many people, what location am I in? Do I have to worry about security? Imagine if all that was stripped away and you could just focus on the task at hand, the project, the design thinking to create innovation, the mindfulness to become a better manager. What if we didn't have to do all the underlining stuff that is trans that, that, that sorry is repetitive, that's rudimentary, that's mundane. What if we could focus on high value, creative, innovative, relationship building? Computers are great at number crunching. People are great at humanity. 
Let's get software to get us to that even level. I know there are a thousand things throughout the course of my day. I would happily give up to Siri or Google Now or Cortana or whoever it happens to be and, I, and allow me to focus more on writing, more on connecting with our customers, more on tweeting, things like that. So, but you're ready, to, you're ready to automate your travel expense report? <laughs> oh, I love, I'm, you know, I can't imagine how much you know, behind you and I are on travel expense. Oh, my expense God. I'm floating six figures, man. I'm, it's not pretty. My existence is travel reports. Oh, so, Alan, you believe that uh, technology can help us become more mindful, more in the present, more attentive to our teammates and our, and our work, you know, work environment. Is that, is that, a, fair, is that a fair assumption of uh, Absolutely. And that's not science fiction. That's not future. That's not crazy analyst predictions. I'm using tools today that are doing things like real time transcribing of the meetings that I'm taking part in. They're doing a good job at analyzing what we're saying and highlighting keywords. They're doing things like highlighting questions and follow up items. If I, as an analyst who spends, you know, a gazillion hours a week in briefings, can pay more attention in those briefings and less time taking notes, I'm going to be better at my job. But is, that, that, making, is that making you more productive? Or, 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 and, and that's what somehow... So it's giving you back time, and your thesis is by getting back more time, I can reflect more, I can study more, I can listen more. Is, 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 that, is, it, is it the benefits of productivity gives you an opportunity to, to be a better person? It's a great question. It's how people sort of quantify and qualify productivity. I think for 20 years, we've been telling people they're going to become more productive. Mm. Every tool, we're going to move from email to messaging to chat to the, every time we're told we're more productive. Our hours of the day have not gotten any better. Mm. I'm not keen on that these tools are going to make me more productive. I think they're going to make me more effective. Efficient also sounds like faster. I may not be faster. I think I'm going to be a better employee because I'm going to be able to focus. I'm still going to work too many hours. I'm still going to have too much to do. But it's not that it's going to make me more productive. It's going to make me better at the things I'm doing because I can focus on the thing. I'm not hired to take meeting notes. I'm hired to analyze trends and figure out patterns and figure out where the future is going. If I can eliminate the typing of taking the, minute, the meeting notes, and just focus on what those notes are telling me, I don't think I'm more productive. I think I still have a lot to do, but I think I'm going to be better at doing it. Is the and CEO this... of your company mindful? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. I will tell you the CEO of my company is extremely supportive to his, to his staff. That's, that's what I'll say. That's awesome. In next week's episode, and Alan's by himself. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. No, yeah, actually, was, I was going to say, like, you know, as, as, as we think about all this, you know, in, in terms of the context of being more effective, and I think that's a great term that you have, Alan, there, being more effective than as opposed to being productive. Um, I mean, does that change the way we hire? Does it change the way we look at training and programs for employees? Well, I, I definitely think the employees skill set is one that is shifting to require a comfort level with technology. I'm not going to say things like millennials are better than Gen X's or Gen Y. You can be of any age. You and I know this very well. But I think companies want to hire people that are accepting of the fact that their software is going to start to do things for them, that 
they're going to have to rely on technology, that new immersive experiences are coming. If you are completely anti-natural language processing, you know, maybe you're not the right fit. Who, who knows? Like, but that skill set is one, and this is nothing new. 20 years ago, we wanted to hire people that were comfortable with that level of technology. That's, that's why I get frustrated when people say millennials, you know, have a different mm. take on things. They don't. 20 years ago, we we were different than the people that had been hired 20 years before us as well. So to answer your question, I think skill sets are evolving. I think new jobs are emerging. I think existing employees are not obsolete, but need to think about enhancing the things that they know. Um, you know, my use of PowerPoint, you know, the traditional tool that you love to hate, that has shifted. I use it in a very different way. I, I use it almost as an animation tool now. So same tool, same employee, but learning to use it differently. I want to end uh, your segment with one of your tweets. This is why I think everybody who's watching should be following Alan. <laughs> Habits remains my biggest barrier to change. I know many of the processes that frustrate me do uh, have solutions, but I am comfortable and set in my ways. Benefits has to outweigh friction. Dude, you are awesome. <laughs> and in haiku awesome. format. And in haiku format. We're live with Alan Lepofsky in Toronto. And he's our vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. Check out some of his work on employee experiences, digital canvases, and more importantly, how we augment humanity uh, to create ambient opt-in experiences. Yes. Hey, thanks a lot, Alan. Alan, you're the Thank best. You guys, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you to everyone for watching. You as well. Woo. Not only is he a great guest, show. he's a great I'm sweating. I'm breaking a sweat out here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All that science that was dropped on us, Ray, in the last hour, I can see how both of us are sweating. <laughs> oh, my God, we're sweating. And wait, wait till next week when we have even cooler guests here. Maybe we'll get a chance to kind of like uh, take it all in. But uh, who do we have coming next week in episode one, one, zero? Episode 110, we got to be getting close to 300 unique guests. We'll have our producer let us know. But we are Howard Yu, Lego professor of management and innovation and author at IMD Business School. Kristen Stewart, president and chief revenue officer at Tribal, State, Tribal Scale and Tribal Scale Venture Studios. And one of my favorite guests, our favorite guests, Larry Dignan, editor-in-chief at ZDNet. So an unbelievably awesome packed show next Friday. <laughs> well hey awesome everyone have a great friday stay cool if you're out here oh my god this is out it's hot it is hot out here like this anyways stay cool and uh, more importantly i'll see you every friday couple dates to think about july 11th we're going to be announcing the business transformation 150 list the top 150 folks in business transformation. Hold this date, October 22nd to 25th, Constellations Connected Enterprise, eighth year row, back at Half Moon Bay at the Ritz Carlton, not, not too shabby. Um, and December 10th is gonna be a very special date, but I'll have to fill in on that later. So just hang in there, but hold those dates, especially, and that's gonna be in the Silicon Valley, so. Ray, it's great seeing you. It's Friday, the last words of We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next Friday, and uh, thank you everyone for watching. Bye, everyone. Bye.